Welcome to Backstage Explorer. I'm your host, Rod Bieber. And today, a very special guest, a, uh, a uh, special guest. She was in town to do a presentation a while back on Moravian music, Dr. Nola Canals. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a delight to be here. Good to meet you. And you were in town a while back doing a presentation on Moravian music. Yes, the music of the Moravian Church in America and far beyond. So we're going to start with a Moravia 101. Yes. And <laughs> where is Moravia? I, I did a little research mm -hmm. and the, what I could come up with was Moravia is a area that um, it's within the Czech Republic and it a little is. bit of mm -hmm. Poland, is that correct? It is. It is predominantly in the Czech Republic. And the Moravian Church, as we refer to ourselves, actually had its origin in that region of the Czech Republic in Moravia and Bohemia. During the um, counter Catholic Counter-Reformation, many of the members of the Unitas Fratrum, or Unity of Brethren, which is what they call themselves, found themselves having to leave, and they went into uh, Saxony, into Germany, for a refuge, for a safe place to live. And they got to be known as those people from Moravia, or those Moravians, Mora and the name stuck. <laughs> so how did you get mixed up with the Moravians? I actually was born <laughs> into a family that had been members of the Moravian Church for many generations. And what, mm -hmm. what prompted your... Um, your research. You've done a tremendous amount of research. In fact, you've written a book. Tell, tell us the name of the book. I have the book. is called The Music of the Moravian Church in America, and it was published by Eastman Studies and Musicology, University of Rochester Press in 2008. I mean, a lot of everybody has some ethnic background of some sort, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. but not everybody decides to go in and re research it and right. make it a, a, a passion. What, what was it about it that... I never expected to do this. <laughs> I went through college and graduate school in music theory, uh, expecting to have a career teaching teaching in academia, teaching uh, college and graduate school music theory and possibly flute and music history. But while I was teaching at Salem College in Winston-Salem, the job of research director at the Moravian Music Foundation opened up and I thought, oh, why don't I apply for that? That'd be kind of fun. And I applied in the fall of 1991. I accepted the job in spring of 1992. Two years later, I became director of the Moravian Music Foundation and the rest, as they say, is history. And you've been director of the Moravian Music Foundation for how many years now? 22 years as director. 22 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Holy smoke. Well, you must be doing a good job or else no, they can't find anybody That's else right, to take it over. That's right, they can't find anybody else to take the one job. Of the, no. One or the other. <laughs> it's like being on a board. You're appointed to a board. That's uh, right. That's right. You agree to serve, and, you know, they like it, and they, they decide they don't want to go look anywhere else, and you just have a great old time. So I understand that, that uh, but for a turn of fate, you may have... Um, been at the hospital this afternoon uh, doing surgery. Uh, that was my hope when I entered college. You were going to be a surgeon. I was going to be a surgeon, but you know. About and your parents were like ecstatic. They that thought that was just really cool. That'd be great. She'll be sending money home That's to us right. every and week you know, and you know, life will be good. There's only one thing that happened. About halfway through my freshman year, I realized I resented having to go to chemistry lab because it was taking my time away from playing the flute. And I thought, wait a minute, we better rethink this. If you can't hack ke freshman chemistry, how are you going to do med school and still live to tell about it? So I finally realized I needed to follow the passion of my heart, which was music. And you told your parents, and of course they... Uh, they kind of <laughs> went, all right, how are you going to make a living? <laughs> so I double majored uh, in college. I double majored, majored in music and math uh, because math. the courses fit. 
I could I could I could do a major in math and still take all the music courses I wanted. M- mainly because you you could line up the classes. I could make the classes work, and then in graduate school, uh, and for my PhD, I had to have two minor fields. So I did music history, and the other minor field was in mathematics. I'm about halfway to a master's in mathematics, but again, my heart re- wasn't really there. So. So if the classes for like culinary culinary school or something had matched up with you the never flute, know. you, you would have been you an executive chef somewhere <laughs> by now. <laughs> Visiting with Dr. Nola Knaus of the Moravian Music Foundation, been a foundation director for 20, what did you say, 20? 22 years. 22 okay. years. Mm-hmm. And you were in town to do a workshop with the um, Moravian Church of Unionville, yes. Michigan. Uh-huh. Now, what, uh-huh. what kind of things did you do when, at the workshop? A workshop on choral singing to help teach them some new anthems to use in worship and a workshop on Moravian band tradition, the brass tradition of the Moravian Church, which is predominantly playing chorales, and we'll hear some of those in a little yeah. bit. Uh, but those two workshops, and then I uh, preached on Sunday morning, and then in the afternoon did a general seminar on worship. So I, I've, in preparation for your visit, because I knew you were going to be here, I, um, I had a couple um, Moravian music discs and one that uh, Sally Zimmer had sent me. I mm-hmm. think you know Sally. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. Have for a long while. It, it struck me as I'm listening to it that it reminded me a little bit of Bach, a little bit of Haydn, a mm-hmm. little bit of Handel, a mm-hmm. little bit of Mozart, yes. but mm-hmm. not exactly. Right. So what what is this Moravian? What's different? Yeah, what's, what's di- different? What makes this work? The, the Moravians, uh, by the time they moved into Germany in the early 18th century, they adopted and adapted a lot of the musical traditions around them. Now, Central Europe, of course, at that time was extremely rich in music. We're recognizing they moved into Germany in 1722. J.S. Bach died in 1750, right. but by this time, of course, the music uh, styles are shifting a little bit away from the um, emphasis on counterpoint that Bach was a specialist. I'm going to flag you there on yeah. a jargon term. Okay, counterpoint. counterpoint. You're going like to flag me on that. Counterpoint is, the simplest counterpoint is singing around. Like row, 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 you both. Yeah, that's right. If you start and I finish, and, or you start and then I start and then somebody else starts and we're all singing at once, and it makes beautiful music, but it can be hard to understand the words. Because, because we're, all, do- we're, we're all doing different words at the same time. Yes. Well, the Moravians didn't much like that because for them, the purpose of the music was to carry the words, the meaning of the words. So the text was the text is a driving the bus importance. as opposed exactly. to the, the richness of the music. Exactly. But that didn't mean they were going to write simplistic mus- or childlike music. Well, that's right, because I'm listening beautiful. to it. It, 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 is. it is. It's gorgeous music, and it takes some real singers and some real players. But you'll notice um, when there are orchestral introductions for the choral music, when the choir starts singing, the orchestral music simplifies a bit. So they do not want to obscure those words. Uh, and it's very, very well-crafted music written by talented and accomplished composers for whom music was not their day job. They were teachers, they were pastors, they were shoemakers, they were bakers, but everyone was trained in enough music to sing or play an instrument. So we're talking craftsmen who loved their music, loved their church, and loved their faith, and wrote the best music they could write in the musical culture of their day. And when was the heyday of writing? I mean, it's still going on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But but in the, say, from 1750 to around 1820, 1830. Conveniently after Bach had passed yes, away. Would they do just wait until Haydn. he died? That's before right. No. They, before he, <laughs> no, but okay, he's gone. Now we, right. can now, write we can this. Write, now we can write what we really want. We can't no, do thanks. anything about but it. here's the fun part about this is that 
they were very much aware of the musical culture that surrounded them, recognizing by the time that J.S. Bach died, his music was already out of style. Well, that's right. In fact, he was almost forgotten. He what, was. like 50 for, years after he... For a long, 50, he, 75 years well, after he died. I think it was Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn that had such a right. big part of the Bach revival. But they knew the music of his sons, particularly Johann Christian Friedrich, J.C.F. Bach, uh, and one of the treasures that's in Moravian musical collections here in North America, in both in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, are only known copies in the world of symphonies and string trios by J.C.F. Bach. They're not in his own hand. They were copied by Moravian musicians in Germany, but brought over here to the New World then. And the original copies, all the copies that J.C.F. Bach might have made, were destroyed or lost. So had the Moravians not preserved their own musical heritage and their love for music, we wouldn't know those pieces Isn't of music. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's just one of those little tidbits that we're yeah. just thrilled with. So music of Bach's son in Germany, mm-hmm. w- were it not for the Moravians in the U.S., w- wouldn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Recognizing, I mentioned the Moravian choral music that has accompaniment by orchestra. Well, you've got all these string players running around, and they're playing accompaniments to anthems, but what are they going to do when the choir's not practicing? They want to play. They want to have a good time with other music. So they borrowed, copied, purchased, ever how they could, got a hold of copies of the best-known music of their day just to play for the sheer joy of making music. You brought some uh, discs, and I I think... Mm -hmm. uh, I, I forgot to tell you the program only runs an hour because you've got music that we could be here till uh, oh till tomorrow nine, at least uh, well at least till tomorrow morning right <laughs> <laughs> what uh, you've, we've got one queued up here mm-hmm. tell us about what we're going to hear okay this is an anthem by uh, American Moravian composer Johann Friedrich Peter the disc is called Sing O Ye Heavens and it's performed by the Bach Festival of Chorus and Orchestra of Winter Park Florida or in German the anthem is Singet ihr Himmel. I thought you were going to do Winter Park, Florida in German. No, that I, I don't know <laughs> I Winter that's Park, where you Florida were going. in Germany. <laughs> no, no, the anthem in Sing It Your Himmel. <laughs> Shall we take a listen? Sure. They, and then come back and visit a little bit more with Nola Knaus. Indeed you are, visiting with Dr. Nola Knaus of the Moravian Music Foundation, a position she cannot relieve herself of. They've reappointed her for 22 years. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Did you know it was a life tenure when Had you took it no on? no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Knaus mm-hmm. was in town uh, a while back doing a workshop and uh, some ministry at the Moravian Church in Unionville, Michigan, and we thought it was a great opportunity. Sally Zimmer of uh, Unionville asked us to mm-hmm. invite you here. Are we treating you okay? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. This is a great conversation. (laughs) So I'm listening to the the music, and uh, we're talking, probably rudely instead of listening, but we we were talking and Mm -hmm. listening at the same time. Uh And you pointed out how um, the the chorus, when the chorus sings, the orchestra is relatively um, simple. Yes. Simplified. Yes. And that's a characteristic of uh, Moravian choral works. It is. It is because, again, the text is the driving force. It's the most important thing. The purpose of the music is to carry the meaning of the text and interpret it and strengthen that meaning deep into the hearts and minds. But at the same time, the music is not unimportant, and the music itself needed to be, needs to be as good a quality music as the composer and performers could produce. And Moravia, we talked a little bit about mm-hmm. at the top of the hour, Moravia 
was not a country. That's exactly it right. It was a region. And it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. So what was the unifying factor of someone calling themselves a Moravian, just because by virtue of where they were geographically? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. The Moravian Church, as it is now known, still bears the name Unitas Fratrum, or Unity of Brethren. It arose from followers of the Czech priest and reformer John Huss. He was martyred in 1415 for his attempts to reform the Holy Roman, excuse me, the Roman Catholic Church. He never intended to found a new church, and indeed he didn't. He died in 1415. Uh, Forty years later, in 1457, some of his followers, so upset at what they were seeing in the world around them and in the church, decided to form their own church body dedicated to simple pietistic living. They did. Uh, they sort of, they were almost like the 15th century equivalent of the 60s hippies, you know, drop out. <laughs> and they did. They dropped out. Tune out, and tune, tune in, and drop out, or try, something whatever, like that. Whatever something it was. like that. Yeah. Tune in, turn on, drop out, or yeah. tune out. I don't remember exactly what the. When I see you, you seem really relatively tuned in. So. That, yes, and and we are. And the, <laughs> but the the church at the time um, in then in the Czech Republic in Moravia and Bohemia grew because of others who were discontented with what they saw in the Roman Catholic Church. They were persecuted during the Counter Reformation years. Um, at varying degrees of difficulty. But during that time, they developed their own church body, uh, their own ecclesiastical orders, their own sense of faith, um, that, and they were closely connected with other reformers at the time when Martin Luther um, arose and the Lutherans broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. Luther received letters from one of our bishops, one of the Moravian bishops at the time, basically um, welcoming him. You know, basically, hello, now you're the new kid on the block. Let me tell you how this forming a church body is done. <laughs> so, and they were cordial relationships between they, the Moravians and the Lutherans and the Moravians and the new reformers, the Reformed Church under Calvin. Uh, and those relationships, the Moravians have remained aggressively ecumenical over our whole 560-year history. Uh, they moved into Germany uh, at the, after the end of the Thirty Years' War. At the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, there was provision in the Peace of Westphalia for the Lutherans and for the Reformed to be legal churches in specific geographical areas, but not for the unity of brethren, the Moravians. They were remained illegal and went completely underground until some of their descendants found refuge in Germany. Uh -huh. And then they became known as those people from Moravia from, or those Moravians. Yeah. So when, the, when did the um, uh, immigration into the U.S. start with the Moravians? Because the there, there's a, there's a you're, you're in uh, Winston-Salem. Yes. Uh -huh. But there's also, I, I think, in, aren't they in Pennsylvania? Yes, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, a bunch in they, Wisconsin. I mean, <laughs> they, we, <laughs> you. a bunch in Wisconsin, a bunch in Ohio, uh, a congregation in Unionville, a congregation uh, outside of Detroit, a number in Florida, a few in New York scattered around, um, one congregation on the West Coast in Southern California. Hmm. But the Moravians, beginning in the 1730s, were highly evangelical, and they sent missionaries all over the known world, first to St. Thomas in 1732, not to witness to the landowners, the plantation owners, but to carry the gospel to the slaves on the plantations. Uh, by the 1740s and 50s, they were in South Africa, Labrador, Greenland, England, and in 1735 sent their first mission to the uh, colonies in America, first to Savannah, Georgia. That mission collapsed after a few years, partly because of climate troubles. If you were from uh, 
<laughs> northern Germany. Uh, somehow Savannah is not a very conducive or healthy climate for you. Plus, there was war to the south of them between Spain and France and Florida, and the Moravians were going to get caught in the middle. Well, because that was before the, uh, the revolution, uh, exactly. obviously. Exactly. So they uh, moved in 1741. They moved uh, to outside of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to Nazareth, and then founded the town of Bethlehem in 1742. Uh, and Moravians are very active in... Um, uh, what education and, yes, and exactly. talk a little bit yes. about that everywhere too. they went around the world they took with them their passion for education which dated back into the 17th 16th and 17th centuries one of our bishops was um, John Amos Comenius who was known as the father of modern education uh, there is the story that goes around that he was invited to become president of the new Harvard University. We don't know how true that is, but he was widely revered around the known world then as an educator. Uh, John Amos Comenius, by the way, was one of the first ones to recommend that children be taught by putting pictures in the books, not just by, really? by the words. Amos was, um, John Amos Comenius was, and he was an educator that said, teach not by beating the children, but by rewarding the children. Yeah. He also was an advocate for education for women. When you teach a man, you teach the man. When you teach a woman, you teach the whole family. Yes. So the Moravians had this in their heritage, and it has become part of our DNA over the years. So everywhere the Moravians have gone around the world, they have taken with them not only their love for the gospel, their passion for spreading the word of God, but also their love for education for all, men, women, boys, girls, Slaves and the children of slaves, wherever they are um, in America, the Native Americans, um, they founded schools among the Cherokee and among the Indians in Tuscarawas Valley, western Pennsylvania and Tuscarawas Valley, Ohio, um, and their love for music. So is there a um, Moravian school system in the U.S., there much are, like Lutherans? There are private have? schools. Uh, yeah. Moravian College in yep. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was founded by the Moravians. Mm -hmm. There are a number of Moravian secondary schools and Salem College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is at least one of the oldest um, schools um, for all women uh, that is still active and thriving as a girls' college, women's college. So. And mm -hmm. still uh, still actively composing music. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Still recognizing. Uh, we mentioned that the sort of golden age of Moravian music, if you will, is the 1750 to 1820 or so. Well, unless you're a composer the, now. Unless you you're think, a composer you now, which can, in which case the, the golden, golden age is what I'm writing today. Exactly. <laughs> but then it wasn't possible to go to the music store and buy music for worship next week. If you wanted music for, that specifically fit the needs of your worship situation, you wrote it. Well, and that's the story about a a Bach. Black as People well. are more, more familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes. you think, well, why did he write it? Well, duh, think about it. That's where, right. where, where, where are you where gonna is he going to go? go buy it? Where is he going to go buy it? And recognizing that they were writing music, they weren't writing old music. They weren't writing music in the style of Palestrina from the 16th century. They were writing music in the musical language of their day right then yeah. for what was popular right now. And this is what we as Moravians still do. We are still writing music that spreads the gospel, that speaks the truth of God as we see it, as we hear it, but in musical language that speaks to the hearts and souls of our people today. And music, musical tastes change. They do. Uh, they do. But, That's uh, exactly right. We have a saying uh, that I like to use on our program is there's, there are only two kinds of music, good music and Bad music. The, the music I like and the music I don't. <laughs> that's right. Right. I guess that's, yeah. That, that's right. It's not necessarily bad if I don't like it, is it? That's right. That's right. But, but, but I tend to think so. <laughs> right. I mean, you can think what you want. But, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh -huh. Misguided as you may that's be. That's right. right. Well, and the other thing we haven't talked about yet is that music for the Moravians in the 18th, 19th century and today was not just music you sat and listened to. It was music you participated in. 
we still tell the story, and there's not a lot of fact to it, but there's some truth to it. Well, don't let fact get in the way. I was going to say, there's a difference between something that's factual and something that's true. (laughs) This one is true. That when a child is born into a Moravian family, you bring that little boy home or that little girl home, and you love them, and you show them off to the grandparents, and after three or four days, you stick a musical instrument in front of their face. (laughs) If they reach for it, you keep them. Like I said, that's not factual, but it's true. But it's true. And Moravians in some places still offer free music instruction for people of all ages to come in and learn to play a brass instrument or just to sing, to learn to read music. But music in the 18th and 19th century was not considered the purview of the specially gifted. Everybody, it was part of your literacy in life. Um, Our patron, if you will, um, Nicholas Ludwig von Sinsendorf, was the count who let us move on to his estate in 1722 and settle in. He believed firmly, he was a Lutheran, by the way, and he believed firmly that singing was the best way to express and form faith. And he measured the health of a congregation not by the power of the preaching, but by the quality and enthusiasm of the congregational song. He said, if you ever hear the quality of a congregation singing begin to decline, look for the spiritual problem within that group of people. (laughs) And I've I've seen that true. It's true. Well, Uh you think today (laughs) people walk around with, Headsets, headsets, headsets on. Music right. is a part of their life. Exactly. It's just you, you couldn't really do that in the 1700s no. because mm-hmm. the, the Wi-Fi was terrible back right. then. Right. Well, and the other distinction here's a big distinction for you that I think. But you had to make your own. It, but that's that's the dis- you didn't make your own in isolation. If I'm sitting there with my earbuds in, am I a part of a community? No, no. No, no I'm listening to something for my private entertainment that's not joining me within a community. It's not providing joy to anybody around me. So music is is a social tool. Exactly. If if I'm making music within a community, then our bonds as a community are strengthened. We build each other up. We grow in faith, love, and hope, and we share the joy amongst us. Sort of like singing in a choir, but living with them as well. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and there are studies nowadays about the health benefits of singing in a choir. (laughs) We've known that forever, just by our own experience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, modern medicine's just getting around to it. It's just catching up to what we already knew. Just catching up to what, up to what the Moravians already knew That's for right. centuries. That's right. Uh-huh. So you got uh-huh. some instrumental uh, selections out here. Yes. Uh, uh, give us a little bit of a, just to illustrate the difference between um, what instrumentalists can do when they don't have to be, I mean, when they're not privileged to be working there with you the go. singer. There, there you go. When they're not <laughs> providing the necessary support to the choir, they can get together and play just for the sheer joy of making music amongst themselves. Instead of doing the, just the doo That's they, right. They're not doing chunk, 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 chunk. <laughs> what we're going to hear is a movement from the quintet in G major by a Moravian composer, Johann Friedrich Pater. This music was written in 1789 in what was then Salem, North Carolina. And as far as we know, this is the early chamber music written in North America in 1789. Did you are visiting with Dr. Nola Knaus of the uh, Moravian Music Foundation and we promise we're going to get to find out what that's all about but uh, would you remind our listeners we just heard a little bit of the instrumental uh, uh, ex- example of some yes. of the Moravian music and much more much more active, aren't they, when they yes. don't have singers cluttering up the works? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you just heard part of the string quintet in G by Johann Friedrich Peter. 
Uh, notice the busyness of those string parts because all five players were just working like crazy to get all those notes in. Well, they're paying them to be there, so they, they may they, as well put them to They get paid by the note. No. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Peter's an interesting guy. He was born in 1746 in Germany, but uh, his parents were Moravian missionaries. He grew up in the Netherlands and went to seminary, the Moravian seminary in Germany, uh, while he was there, he copied, oh, 60 or 70 pieces of instrumental music. He's the copyist who copied the symphonies and trio sonatas by J.C.F. Bach that I mentioned a little that, while that, ago. That they had found. Because he thought he was going to be sent to America to serve here, and he wanted music to come with him. So he, and, he's and an it, interesting guy. Yeah, and it's fascinating <laughs> that that was written in, uh, you said, 1789. Yeah, his, his quintet was written in 1789 Just, uh, while he was serving in, in, the US. in Salem, North Carolina, yeah. now Winston-Salem. <laughs> he was there for 10 years. During the time he was there, thinking of your American history, uh, America was involved in and just finishing the American Revolution with the, the, the peace, uh, the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Uh, the governor of North Carolina declared that the 4th of July, 1783, should be celebrated as what he called a day of solemn thanksgiving. Well, the Moravians got that word something like four days before July 4th. I think they got the word on the 29th or 30th of June. All right, what are you going to do? We're going to celebrate a day of solemn Thanksgiving for the Moravians. That means lots of music. Yeah. you got four days to pull it together. Let's go to the music store. Wait, we it's, don't have we music We don't have stores. a music <laughs> store. Wait, let's go to the library. We've <laughs> now, got music. Now what do we do? What we had was the music that was used in Germany to celebrate the conclusion of the Seven Years' War in 1763. We had copies of those anthems. So Peter did a little work here and a little work there, and he said, we're going to use starting at measure 42 of this piece, and then we're going to connect it with this hymn, we're going to do this, and we put together what is now known as the Psalm of Joy, the first known celebration of American independence in America, 1783. We don't have a recording of that that we can use today, but what's fascinating about that is that it is not a, yay, we won. It is a, thank God there's peace. Yeah. So let's just get on with our lives. Yeah. We're at peace now. One of the uh, great um, musical um, contributions is brass music. Yes. For the Moravians, recognizing that they came from Central Europe, which had a huge tradition of, of tower music, if you call You put your musicians up in the highest tower of the town, and they become the town criers, if you will. They announce what's going on. They provide entertainment. Well, the Moravians took that on. But whereas in Central Europe, that was done by professional musicians who played uh, natural horns and trumpets, which, you know, if you know anything about brass instruments, you only have, even a modern brass instrument, you only have three vowels, and you got to make a lot of different notes with that, so you got to have pretty, pretty strong lips, because that's how you make the different sounds. Well, in order to do that on a natural horn that's got no vowels whatsoever, the valve was invented, invented in the early 19th century, you got to, if you're going to play a melody, you got to be way strong in the lips. Well, that, yeah, you got to learn you how to do buzz that your buzz lips. thing, <laughs> right. and you got to be strong in the lips. Well, Moravians didn't have people whose day job was music. They needed instruments that could be played by amateur players who had other jobs. Well, the trombone is perfect for that. It's a natural instrument. It's got this slide that helps them go up and down, and it came in four sizes, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass trombone. Not to mention the fact that in the Luther Bible, uh, here we are with the connection with the Lutherans. Again, the Bible translated into German by Martin Luther is the one that the Moravians were using. Uh, it talks about all the passages in the New Testament that talk about the last trumpet shall sound, and here comes the trumpet of God. Well, in the Luther Bible, that word is posauna, which is trombone. Trombone. So the Moravians considered themselves, in a way, God's trombones. <laughs> 
So they put trombone groups in the belfry of the church to announce things to the town. They had the trombone choir meet visitors at the gates. If someone in the community died, they'd play certain chorales from the church tower to announce that there had been a death and a special chorale that identified the age, rough age, sex, and marital status of the decedent. And then another chorale wrapping it up, reminding us that death is the fate of all of us and we should look forward to being home with Jesus. So they did that. So what the trombone choir did and the brass choirs do now is sort of expand the ecclesiastical space, if you will. It made it clear that all of life was worship, is worship, and there's no distinction between the sacred and the secular. And with a trombone uh, choir, you're, you're not going to go unnoticed. That's right. You're going to be heard. <laughs> you're and going it's also, to be heard. It's impervious to the weather. It can rain. It can <laughs> snow. Right. The trombone still works. <laughs> That's so, right. And the Moravians still use the brass choirs, and in many places, full bands with uh, woodwinds as well. Um, for those ecclesiastical purposes, we still play to accompany singing at outdoor services, funerals. We still use them at uh, Moravian church gatherings. Uh, special events that for the Easter morning dawn services, that sort of thing. And they are still amateur players who play just for the love of it. For the love of playing the music. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Should we listen to a little brass music? Sure. The one you're going to hear is tune that Moravians know as, the Moravian band players know as 115B. <laughs> now those tunes, the numbers come about, if we had five tunes that were all numbered 115, 115A, 115B, 115C, 115D, they all have the same metrical structure, same number of lines, same number of syllables per line. So the band players know the, know the tunes like that, not by the words. Because you can interchange exactly. different words exactly. and, and that, that have the same uh, number of words. Exactly. Just For instance, change music. The doxology, the praise God from whom mm-hmm. all blessings flow, that's tune 22E in our collection. It means you could sing it for 22A, 22Z, 22Q, whatever. There are all these different numbers of tunes that have the same number of lines and the same number of syllables per line. So you're going to hear tune 115B that we (laughs) sing to the words, How Great the Bliss to Be a Sheep of Jesus. Selection of some brass music. Wonderful piece. It is. We're great. Visiting with Dr. Nola Kanaus of the Moravian Music Foundation. She was in town a while back doing a uh, workshop and some ministry at the Unionville Moravian Church and uh, from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yes. And uh, a recovering flutist. Uh, no, not recovering. <laughs> I'm still being a flutist. <laughs> Hopefully I always will be. <laughs> how did you uh, How did you get into the flute? How did I pick the, I yeah. played piano ever since I was five or six years old. My parents had me taking piano lessons and I wanted to play another instrument in the seventh grade. I started playing, excuse me, in the fifth grade, I started playing violin in the school orchestra. Well, in the seventh grade, the uh, Winston-Salem Forsyth County Schools, in an attempt to save money, dropped the school orchestras. Uh, So I was a year without playing in an ensemble at school, wanted to play something again, and okay, I'll play in the band. Well, at that time, girls didn't play brass instruments, and I didn't want to fool with a reed that I knew clarinets had, so flute was my choice. Wise and choice. That's, that's, I've been a flutist ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I thought uh, it was sort of like the math class, that the, the flute it class fit. happened to fit your well, schedule. Well, the, the flute fit my, <laughs> what I wanted. I mean, if, this, is, this is sort of a Moravian trait, is to do something for an intensely pragmatic <laughs> reason, and then somehow find some sort of theological <laughs> reason right. to back it up. <laughs> you, you are practical, uh, if nothing else. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. So the Moravians uh, are not ashamed of using non-Moravian composers' oh, music. Exactly. We used a lot. And we, if we could, didn't write it ourselves, we found somebody else who did and copied it or borrowed it or purchased it.
twisted if possible. I think they call that ripping it off. Not now. Not, <laughs> not then. Now. <laughs> not then. Uh, then there were no copyright laws. That, that's right. And in fact, copying was the sincerest form of flattery. Well, in fact, to to mm-hmm. study composition, you copy. You would copy because you, there was right. a tactile sense of exactly. I, I I understand what I'm looking at because I'm because doing I know it. how those yeah. notes fit together. Yeah. And even as a music teacher, when I was doing my college teaching, the people who could write the best music, say, in the style of Bach, were the people who had played it because they knew when it felt right under their fingers. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. So what, we, what are we going to hear? You're going to hear part of just a, a chorale, of a hymn, taken from the Easter cantata by Ernst Wilhelm Wolff, who was not a Moravian composer, but he was uh, active in the court of Weimar in the late 18th century um, as a composer and conductor. This Easter cantata is... Ten movements. Um, there are seven or eight complete copies of the manuscript of the Easter Cantata surviving in the world, and most of them are in Moravian hands. We copied this piece and loved it. So this is a chorale out of the Easter Cantata. Yes. We just heard the uh, a chorale from the Easter Cantata by Ernst Wilhelm Wolff, which he was not a Moravian. He was a Lutheran, in fact, and uh, wrote this as part of his Easter cantata, which the Moravians copied and used all around their known world, including in Labrador and South Africa. Labrador. Labrador and South Africa. There are copies of this piece. Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Backstage Explorer. I'm Rod Bieber. My guest is Dr. Nola Kanaus of the Moravian Music Foundation, and uh, people have been sitting beside their radio all hour waiting for you to tell us what the Moravian Music Foundation is all about. Okay, here's the fun. Moravians, ever since our founding in the middle of the 15th century, have been pack rats. We have considered our history, telling our story as important, not because of what we've done, but because we've seen our history as an example of how the Lord has cared for his people and continued to help us serve out his mission in the world. Well, that means we kept everything. If a Moravian (laughs) quits using it, they don't throw it away. They pack it away. In the (laughs) 1940s, the Moravians began to discover this heritage of this stack of immense quantities of old music. They pulled some of it out and said, I wonder if it's any good. 1950, they held their first early American Moravian music festival where they sang from the original manuscripts. They loved it. They did the same thing again in 1954, and when Moravians do things twice, it's a tradition. (laughs) They decided they needed an organization whose purpose it was to provide music for Moravian music festivals. So the foundation was chartered 60 years ago in 1956 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We are the custodians of this immense treasure of American Moravian music. You must have piles and piles of music. Something like 10,000 manuscripts and early prints of music used in early America. But each piece has parts. Yes, I it mean, does. it's not enough to have one no, score. You have, You've got you a have set individual of parts. performing parts, and in fact, for many of those pieces, you don't have scores. You just have sets of parts, which is just a treasure. So you, you have all these performance parts that they keep playing, and that they, again, when the music went out of style, they packed it away and, and kept it. So this music has been discovered, rediscovered. There was a cataloging project in the 1960s and 70s, which is now being converted to online records. So you can sit at home, go to moravianmusic.org, and look up under our resources, and you will find a way to find out what the music of the Moravians in America has. What are the treasures we care for? You know, there's another topic we could get into if we had another hour of the whole um, storage 
of all that music yes. and preservation because exactly. you can't just put it in somebody's basement. No, you don't. In fact, it's some of it survived in people's basements. Well, I'm and sure. you know, we're still finding music by the Moravians. We know of music that was written and performed in the early 19th century in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, that sounds like it must be really intriguing, but we don't know where it is. And somebody probably will find it, it, it someday. It will be in somebody's attic, basement, or organ chamber. So, but for your listeners, if you find some music that looks really old in your house and there's only a part or two of it, don't throw it away. Take it to somebody who might be able to help you figure out what it is. So I on sh- weekends, do you go like around to like garage sales and look no, for music? No, I, d- I don't, but I ask people who do <laughs> to, find, to bring me anything old they think's interesting. <laughs> we were able to recover some parts in an auction in well, Pennsylvania I, I, 10 years ago. I um, mean, I say that partly in jest, no, but, 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 but it's But what true. we found was a box of music that, that we were able to get a hold of that had in it the violin part to a trio where we had the flute and cello parts already. <laughs> you could tell it was part of the same set of parts because there's a water stain that goes through all the parts. <laughs> Somebody just didn't turn his music back in. <laughs> Sounds like a violinist. It must have been. But the Moravian Music Foundation is a nonprofit corporation chartered in North Carolina, but also has offices in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We serve church musicians, scholars, professional musicians, and we urge you to check out our website at, again, www.moravianmusic.org. Dr. Nola Knaus, thank you for joining us. I don't know where the hour went, but... Uh it went too fast. It we went could too talk fast. For another one. <laughs> Next time you come out to look us up, have Sally Zimmer give me a call, and we'll I'll be have very you come happy out to. Thank and, you so uh, much. Again. And the next you. time you find yourself in Salem, Winston Salem, or Bethlehem, look us up. I'll knock on your door. We'll go garage sailing together. Come, sounds like a plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> thanks for listening. Go out and make it a great rest of the day. My thanks to Dr. Nola Knaus, and we'll see you later. <laughs>